this is Steve. And this is Lisa. And this is our podcast called... I Married a History Teacher. And if you're noticing anything different, it's because we finally got microphones. We did. It feels so different to be speaking into them. What? <laughs> it also requires us to actually sit at a table instead of lounge on a couch, so that's a downside for me personally. Yeah, but at least you get to look at my pretty face. I do. You're right. Yeah. We're going to take a quick pause to see how these microphones sound. All right, so the microphones sound good, but it's my constant fidgeting that doesn't sound good. Yeah, it turns out when you take it and bounce it up and down in your hand absentmindedly, it kind of takes away from sound quality. Yeah, but I also just think it's my general inability to sit still. Like, I just think my maneuvering sort of messes with the sound. And man, when I get to drinking, the glass is going to be tinking. <laughs> Sorry. I had some comments, but you, you, you just like ended it so ridiculously. It was a nice rhyme. Uh, it was a rhyme, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, you, that has been a challenge in general with podcasting is your the noises that you make in the background. I'm a fidgeter. I'm mm-hmm. doing it for fidgeters' awareness. Yeah. There's, Unity. I didn't realize how many people were on your team until they came out with that. What was that device? The fidget spinner. The fidget spinner, yeah. I was kind of upset when the fidget spinner came out because I was a teacher and it would look almost like a weakness if I were to be playing with the fidget spinner. But Mm. good God, did I want one. I was so jealous of those kids who had fidget spinners. So it was allowed in classes. Oh, hell yeah. It was encouraged because it's like apparently the like kids that have like listened like, you know, if you're fidgeting, it's probably because fidgeting is actually helping you focus. Yes, this is what I have learned from you. Yes. Yeah, which it's it's really counterintuitive to someone like me who like very much settles in and like locks eyes when I'm trying to listen. Yeah. Because I'll be trying to tell you a story and you'll just have to be tapping on something and, and looking away sometimes. And I'm like, really? And you're like, I'm listening. This helps me. I'm like, I don't understand your brain. Yeah, well, you know, it's a weird one. Yeah, but it is. But, and again, as I said, there's there's more people like you than I realize. It's worked out well for me. Mm-hmm. You know, we do okay. We I have do. this we do really great. fantastic podcast. <laughs> we have a roof over our heads. Yeah. I have a hot wife. <laughs> oh, jeez. It's just, you know, it works out and it's been working out, you know? <laughs> It is kind of sad to me that you felt like it would make you look weak if you were up there teaching with Yeah, well, I don't know. You can't be doing anything the kids are doing too intensely. Like, you need to be in the know. Like, you need to yeah. know who, like, uh, you know, Lil Uzi Vert is. <laughs> but if you were too into Lil Uzi Vert, it'd be weird. Yeah. No, I know. And you had some teachers like that that were, like, too into things. Oh, yeah. There's, like, a line. No, oh, there's a line. There's yeah, you can't go far too far on either end. You mm-hmm. gotta, mm-hmm. you gotta. Well, I guess you gotta walk the line. You have to be one of the kids without being one of the kids. Yep. Yeah. It's, it's an art form. It is. Um, so anyway, Lisa, mm-hmm. it's funny that we're talking all about high school because this is. You're touching the mic. Sorry, it, we're talking all about high school, and this is our first episode ever where we have a real life college professor. With a PhD in everything, coming on for an interview tonight. A PhD in everything. Everything. Got the whole thing. Field experience. Oh, you mean a PhD and everything. I thought you said a PhD in everything. No, and everything. (laughs) No, sorry. sorry. (laughs) I was like, you are really overselling Love curves. Love curves. There's no such thing as that. She doesn't have a PhD in everything. (laughs) Not yet. Um, Growing up with Kirby, it seems like she, she thought she had a PhD in everything. 
Oh, <laughs> Sorry, Curbs. Cheap shot. She, <laughs> not here, cheap shot not, not to here awesome to defend job. yourself. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we're going to get to Kirby soon. Um, my cousin, she's a, she's a professor um, in Mayan studies. But I want to I do some background here on, on why, why we're going to be talking about the Mayans. Mm. Um, because things kind of changed. Like, she, like Kirby turned out to be, sorry, Professor Farah, um, she was so knowledgeable and could talk so easily about all questions we threw at her that the theme kind of changes by the end of it. Mm-hmm. But the, the general theme for tonight that I really wanted to do was do this episode about how climate change, at least in terms of humans impacting their environments around them, is actually not new. Mm-hmm. And there's been so many examples that we can look to in the past where it was like, this was happening here mm-hmm. when this is pre-industrial and yeah. humans were still having this massive impact on the climate. Yeah, although I will say the examples from the past are more kind of like micro examples mm-hmm. where it's very kind of specific to limited to a certain geographic area and like everything in this world now. Like, something that happens in one corner of the world seems to affect everywhere, and climate change is really just, like, a global problem that's everyone's issue. Right. The big difference that I want to make totally clear here is what's happening now with climate change is, like, this massive potential existential event. Yeah. Where, like, we heat the world so much that we're all, excuse my French, fucked. Mm. Where... Some of the other stuff we're going to be talking about today is just, like, it's happening regionally. But not all of it. Yeah, okay. Um, But one thing I wanted to be totally clear about here is, A, we are still selling 30-second commercials for $30 if you guys want to advertise anything. And B, I would like to share... Which have become even more valuable now that we have real mics. Yes, real mics. Mm. And as we mentioned last podcast, several new listeners. Several, yeah. Yes. 25% increase. I imagine they'll increase tenfold once they know we have microphones. We probably sound so goddamn professional right now on this podcast, Lisa. It's going to blow everyone's minds. Yeah. I honestly have a feeling it's not going to be that different because these Macs are so souped up Garage Band is incredible. Yeah. It's really incredible. <laughs> but yeah, maybe there's like the mic vibe will come through. You know, sure. like these people are speaking into mics and that's what makes it cool. Yeah, I hear you. Mm-hmm. I hear you, bro. And then we'll drop it at the end. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Don't. Now. At the end. Yes, yeah, sorry. Sorry, too early. Um, but the motivation for this episode was actually kind of funny because. Can't it, play with the wires either. Sorry, sorry. It was a meme that inspired me. And like I saw it on my own and then a couple people like, like Louie sent me this meme. So mm-hmm. it almost seemed like fate, right? And like the meme was of Genghis Khan. Ah. And it was like a history meme. It wasn't like an actual funny meme. Yeah. It was like a history nerd meme. It was of Genghis Khan. Uh And the thing that it said was that in the early 12,000s or the 13th century, Genghis Khan killed so many people, there was a measurable decrease in the amount of carbon in the atmosphere. Okay? Now... That's interesting, but it also kind of reads as internet bullshit that's probably not true. Yes, it could. T- Can I do a non sequitur? Well, that's what you're master at. What's yeah. up? I just reminded me, when I started my, I did my master's in conflict resolution, and I don't know, I was in a weird mood, and they sent out this email that felt very kindergarten-y, and it, you had to fill out all these things about you. 
And it didn't really, like, click about, like, where it would show up. And they were like, who's your favorite historical figure? And for some reason, I was like, I can't take this seriously. So as a joke, I put Genghis Khan um, being in the Masters Conflict Resolution. I didn't really think anything of it. And I was like, this is silly. And then it, like, got circulated to, like, our whole program. And, like, there was, like, pictures of everyone. And it was, like, a lookbook. And, like, everyone was pouring through it. <laughs> and I just looked like this idiot who wanted to start a conflict resolution. And whose hero was Genghis Khan. Um, to be fair, though, when he was alive, if you were in his empire, it was, like, the safest Asia has ever been. That's one way to look at it. I certainly didn't get into conflict resolution to figure out how killing people made the world better, but or made you know certain tribes better. But um, yeah, he, he was he is, is impressive. Argument. Yeah, and you know he was yeah number one climate change reducer. Yes, in theory, if the yes. internet meme is true. Well, it turns out it is true, but it's not really the whole story. Okay, because okay, that was done actually. So this is factual. That did happen. Huge drop in the amount of carbon in the atmosphere because of Genghis Khan. Uh-huh. But it's missing a key point here. Oh, were they all like, were they, did they take care of cows that died that were also at It was home? agriculture, right. Mm. So there, he killed approximately, we think, around 40 million people. Oh my God, I didn't think it was that bad. <laughs> yeah, no, he was intense. I'm a monster. Or like died as a result of Genghis 40 Khan. 40 million. Yeah, and if you think about it, because I'm going to bring this stat up later. Um, the population of the entire world at the time was an estimated 350 to 400 million. Yeah, that's So it's like unreal. 10% of the world was, was killed by Genghis Khan. unbelievable. Yes. Holy shit. And like the meme is almost like, oh shit, Genghis Khan was such a badass dude. But like what was really happening is that because there's 10% decrease in the population, there's way less of a um, need for all that agriculture. Yeah. And just general agriculture and communities got wiped out. And when they yeah. got wiped out, the natural growth and greenery took back over in the steppes of Asia wow. and, you know, obviously started eating a lot more of that carbon up. Wow. Right? So think about this. This happened in the 1200s, the 13th century. Yeah. Okay. Massive drop in the amount of carbon in the atmosphere. And that is when we, okay, so we have now have 7 billion people in the world. Yeah. And we are post-industrial. We're industrialized. So carbon drops have been happening forever. Just whenever you see dips in populations since we became agricultural. Mm-hmm. Okay, since the Neolithic Revolution. This, only, this didn't only happen with Genghis Khan. It happened with the Black Plague. Mm. Um, it happened with the Ming Dynasty when the Ming Dynasty fell in China. Mm. Um, the transition was very poor. The Ming Dynasty was sort of thriving, and like it was, China went through rough times. And since China was like you know, yeah. a twelfth of the world at right. that time, there was also a drop in. It happened during the colonization of the Americas because so many Native Americans that were um, agricultural people as well they they died off from smallpox, mm. you can also measure the drop, okay? Mm. So just think about, like, I hope this is putting this in perspective for everyone. Like, people are cl- try to claim that we're not impacting our environment now when this stuff has been happening with a fraction of the amount of people in the world prior to the Industrial Revolution. Yeah, this is such a great, I mean, I was going to say neutral way to put it, but I'm sure our country would find a way to make it. Um, we politicized a pandemic. Of course, what I'm saying is political. Yeah, no, I know. Nothing yeah, we can say yeah. is, is not For political. For sure. But because it hasn't been part of the rhetoric, it feels yeah. neutral right now. 
Um, but yeah, it is. It's super logical. And you don't, it's not so like, listen to the scientists because, you know, then there's whole like, well, screw experts. It's just like, well, just like generally like speaking, like, and like, you know, I feel like you'd get anyone on board with Genghis Khan. Sure. You know? Right. I feel yeah, like yeah. the right and the left will listen. Yeah, sure. It's just an example, you know, yeah. but, um, uh, yeah. So, but so that kind of inspired this idea in me, right? Yeah, it's, it's like great, historic great. climate change. Right? So there's two other things that I had always thought about with, with at least humans impacting the environments around them. Mm. Okay? One of them was Easter Island. Do you know the story about Easter Island by any chance? I'm going to do this real quick because Kirby just has way better nuggets than I do and I want to get to Kirby quick. But I was going to get into this whole thing about all these different stories about societies that ruin their environments. Mm. Um, but instead, we're just going to make it mostly focused on the Mayans. Okay, just because Kirby had a lot to say. Yeah. Okay. Um, Easter Island. All I know is that there's some, like, uh, when I think of it, there's, like, some stone statue that I associate Well, there's with. lots of them. There's those giant statues. Yes, yeah, like, kind of, like, Stonehenge-y. Yeah. Sort of, except they're shaped like faces. Like yeah. These massive But do they faces. know where they came from? Well, they came from the island. They're, the island is one of the most, I think, other than Hawaii, is the most isolated, habit, inhabited island in the world. Mm-hmm. So there was stones from that island. Yeah, sorry. No, I meant, like, you know how Stonehenge, no one can explain how they got there. Yeah, so there's like, lots of theories. Yeah. So a lot of people think that what they were doing to move those stones into place is putting them on logs and rolling them. Mm. So cutting down a lot of trees. Mm. It also turned out, that those inhabitants of Easter Island, I hate myself for not knowing the real name of the people on Eastern Island, because Easter Island is obviously the English phrase for when they discovered the island on Easter Sunday. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, sorry, I, I can't think of the real name right now. Okay. Um, but l- sort of pseudo-legend slash because of this really famous historian, Jared Diamond, he said that basically all of the natives on this island cut down all of the trees to move these statues into place that eventually they no longer had any more trees, and because they were a um, fishing society, they needed boats and stuff. So they were sort of created a situation where there wasn't enough lumber for them to sustain their way of life, and a vast majority of them died off. That's a shame. It is, but it isn't. Also, to be totally clear, a lot of that has been pseudo-debunked. That is true on one hand, but the main reason that they actually sort of declined in significant numbers is because a rat came on a boat with Pacific Islanders and the rats multiplied without having any natural predators and they were eating all of the tree shoots when they were little babies. Oh, so no trees no. were growing back after they had been chopped down to move the stones and make boats and stuff. Talk about a one-two punch. Sure. It was actually a one-three punch because another thing that they recently discovered is probably slavers from Ecuador that would come into the island and, like, taking half the population and leaving. One-two-three so, punch. Yes, yes, yes. Oof, oof. Right, but anyway, the other really famous example or pseudo-famous example of a society of people that destroyed their environment was very much the Mayans. And I started looking into this, and I was like, wait a minute. My cousin is a doctor in this shit, bro. Why am I doing the research when I can make Kirby do all the legwork? Yeah, no, and it was a great idea. She, like, is very, very knowledgeable. Yeah. So I think right now we're going to cut out, and I'm going to cut in our interview from last night with Professor Farah. Woo.
Right? All right. We'll, we'll see you in a little while after the interview, maybe. Or maybe we'll just head out. We'll see how we feel. We'll see how we feel. Goodbye. For now. Welcome to I Married a History Teacher, Kirby. Thanks. Good to be here with you guys. Um, let's First things first, I guess I can't call you Cousin Kirby anymore. That wouldn't be very professional for this. <laughs> so I guess I should refer to you as Dr. Farah moving forward. Fancy. I like that, yeah. I like it too. <laughs> Do you think I should just call you Dr. Farah moving forward just in our day-to-day yeah, lives? Yeah, in general. That yeah. would be great. Okay. <laughs> All right. Cool, cool, cool. Um, let's first establish our ethos here. By establishing your ethos, we're establishing our ethos as a, as a podcast. Mm. So what, what, what are your credentials here, Curbs? I mean, Dr. Farah. <laughs> Um, so I am an assistant professor of anthropology at Gettysburg College, um, but mostly the area of anthropology I specialize in is archaeology, and I work in a part of the world that we refer to as Mesoamerica. And for those of us who are still getting their apologies down, anthropology... Yeah, I get it. I, oh, okay. It's <laughs> <laughs> like a two out of ten joke, but... Um, Anthropology is like the study of human culture at large? Well, yes, human beings. Human beings. Um, anthropology is the study of humans. Study of humans. Okay, and then archaeology would be this using excavation as a way to understand humans? <laughs> yes, so we would say that archaeology is the study of humans through their material remains. Ooh. So archaeologists aren't, we aren't, Typically, or definitely not exclusively studying li- living humans, though some people do kind of do that work now. Um, those are more cultural anthropologists. Those are the people that like, go live with people and really typically try to get to know their culture on a deep level. Um, there are physical anthropologists. Uh, those individuals are usually more concerned with human evolution. Um, and then there are linguistic anthropologists, medical anthropologists. There's lots of kinds of anthropologists, but uh, archaeologists were mostly studying. Most of us study dead people, not all of us. Some people study more, more living humans and their remains, but most of us are studying dead people through what they leave behind. It's perfect. Yeah, that's very helpful. Thank we, you. We talk mostly about dead people, so that works. It does, yeah. Mm. Um, yeah. Also for, you know, kindergarten listeners... What's could you describe Mesoamerica for us just to be clear? Sure, Mesoamerica is a culture area um, that we define. It's, it's that is to say, it's not defined by nation states. Um, it's defined by shared cultural traits of people that lived there in the past. Uh, but today, the, to help locate it in the world, uh, it's mostly uh, the area central to southern Mexico. Um, all of Belize, Guatemala, and a little bit of northern Honduras and El Salvador is sort of the part of the world we're referring to. Mm. And when you were deciding where to specialize, did you at all take into account where you wanted to visit most in the world, or did you just go driven based on what dead humans you wanted to know about? Out of curiosity. Dead humans, um, I guess. Uh, this, I, I was at a university, the University of Texas is an undergrad studying art and art history, and I was really interested in Mexican art in particular. Mm. And so 
yeah, it was it was driven more by where in the world I wanted to work, but not where I wanted to visit. Yes, Got like it. I, there are far more I don't know bougie places or whatever that uh, might have been a little bit easier to live and work in, mm. certainly. Um, but I'm interested in in the culture. For right. sure, I love it. I love Mexican culture as well. Yeah. Um. So, speaking of you know Mexican culture. We're going to be talking largely about the Mayans tonight for like a greater um, podcast about people impacting their own environments and their, you know, I'm not talking about like existential climate change. I am talking about people, communities, societies that have impacted their, the world around them enough to have a negative impact on them. Um, so I want to talk to you about the Mayans, right? Um, you know, why do the research myself when I can call my professor cousin on the matter um it's a great life hack yes so one thing we need to do we need to do is can you just sort of like give like an elementary explanation of who the mayans actually are because i think it's largely misunderstood who what that means to be mayan uh so in the past at least uh the the maya is it's a somewhat arbitrary category right it's a category that people studying these humans sort of gave to them. Um, and just like Mesoamerica, uh, the Maya region and sort of Maya culture is defined more based on a set of sort of shared characteristics. Uh, and in this case, also a shared language group. Um, there are something like 30, I might be somebody on here that knows the Maya better than I do, which are some people. 31, I think, living Mayan languages um, but, uh, in the past there may have been quite a few more, um, but they all, they're all a shared linguistic group, but it, it, so I don't want to say it's a totally arbitrary characteristic or whatever, because it's not right. Um, there is a shared language, but I sort of hesitate to call it artificial also because people today identify as Maya and that's a really important identity, but it's sort of, um, and it is based in language, but it's also sort of a strategic identity because it helps to identify as part of a much larger cultural group because then you have allies, sure. right? Especially when you're indigenous people, say, living in Guatemala that may technically speak a different language than other Maya people, but do have a shared struggle. Um, but yeah, but in terms of archaeology, so now we're talking about dead people, um, it basically refers to all of the people who were living primarily in the Yucatan Peninsula of Mexico, as well as in Guatemala, Belize, and in this case also, again, northern Honduras um, and El Salvador. And these people were not a shared civilization. So they're not living under like one big umbrella. They don't identify as the same as one another in the past at all. They're largely identifying probably in relation to um, the large sort of cities that they're living around. Um, and the kingdoms under which they're living. So we use a term to refer to a big grouping of people um, who didn't necessarily identify as the same as their neighbors. Sure. Okay. So, like, we're not Canadians, but someone could call us all Americans. Yes. Yes. And we That's might go to war with Canada if we felt like it. Right. Yeah, we could. Yes. Yes. Um, 
it would be like that, but then it would be like as if other people just referred to you all. Like if we're not Mexican or Canadian, but if other if most other people just referred to us all as like North Americans or whatever. Sure. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, <laughs> now it's my understanding. Okay, that, can I ask? Yeah, a sure. Question. Jump in there. Is there like a dominant? part of Maya culture that kind of defines it like a certain area like on the Yucatan or something that like when people think of the Maya they that's what kind of paints the picture most clearly or um well there are a lot of characteristics that people probably think of when they think of Maya so um the Maya were pyramid builders um often so in our big cities we do have a lot of uh large stone pyramids um, those are pretty characteristic of the Maya, though pyramids are also found across Mesoamerica, so they're not exclusive to the Maya, but I think most people would think of those. Yeah. Um, the Maya also quite famously had a pretty advanced calendar system, and also um, they, they did write. They had a glyphic system. Um, so those are a couple of characteristics. Um, but again, it's not shared across all. We don't have writing um, on monuments, for example, across all Maya cities. Um, and because the Maya were around for, depending on sort of how you characterize them, probably, you know, 1,500, 2,000 years, um, and possibly longer, the dominant places in the region change over time. Mm. Yeah. So sometimes, uh, the classic Maya period, for example, which is sort of the, the, the great Maya fluorescence that most people think about, um, happening from roughly like AD 200 to 900, something like that. It, that's mostly in um, very, very southern Mexico and in sort of Guatemala and Belize. This is the area we refer to as the lowlands. Okay. Okay. That's very helpful. So it's almost like the most notable things, wherever they came from at whatever time is what they're most known for, not necessarily like this tribe over here. They kind of colored the whole view. Yeah, not at different times. There were different dominant cities for sure, but yeah, throughout all of history, no. Got it. Cool. So it's kind of like how, for a while, New York was the most dominant city, but now Baltimore, Maryland, <laughs> is like the hub of American culture. Yes, okay. that's exactly what I was thinking. All right, things change. Yeah, okay, I got you. Um, all right, so you mentioned the classic Maya period, um, and there's there's three phases of Mayan, like that we consider. Is that correct? Like, um, sure. I think you're maybe referring to the pre-classic, the classic, and then maybe like the post-classic. Yes, quite frankly, yeah. <laughs> yes, there are. I suppose yes, that's true, but we don't. Yes, there, there are multiple time periods in which um, we see sort of different kinds of things happening among the Maya. Sure. Yeah. And I mean, again, you know, we take like these full hundreds of year long stories and put them into a 40 minute podcast. So we have to do plenty of, of oversimplifying here. Um, but so one of the things that I originally thought I was going to be doing this, this sort of podcast about the Mayans about was the end of the classic Mayans where we're going to talk about like, you know, like basically over farming and overpopulation led to like a steep sort of decline in that period. And, 
if there's more to it of people impacting their cultures, please throw it that out there. Um, is that about it though, for at least for the classic, like in terms of humans altering their, what's going on around them too much? It was just over farming and overpopulation or was there more than that? Yeah, it might've been a lot of things. So basically what happens is towards the end of this classic period, which is defined as such because it's the end of this major period, um, a lot of these big cities, cities um, like Tikal and Kalakmul, in particular Palenque, Copan, they all begin rapidly declining. Um, it varies, but between, let's say, maybe like 750 AD to like 900, we see a pretty um, significant decline in these major cities. These are all, again, in, that, in this region, the southern lowlands region, central southern lowlands. And yes, so overfarming may have been a big factor. Uh, particularly, Copan maybe saw this um, big population, so overpopulation, um, a lot of endemic warfare happening, probably because of reduced like access to food. Uh, droughts in some parts of the region were probably an issue. Maybe not everywhere. Um, epidemics are possible. We don't know. Um, sort of exact, there's no one factor probably. Um, it's probably a number of things happening all at once. Um, we know warfare is definitely a big player here because what we begin to see is um, moats and walls being built around cities. Um, we begin to see uh, cities being completely abandoned, uh, rapidly abandoned. So warfare is definitely at play, but warfare is probably at least in part caused by some of these other environmental factors. Sure. Mm. Okay. That's great. Um, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. It's just in. a random question, but like, how does one tell from remains if there was a rapid abandonment? Like, is it, like, what does it look like in a city? That's a good question. So usually what we'll have is a lot of stuff left in place. So left behind as it was. So we'll have households with stuff left out, um, which is pretty rare actually, because when you think about it, most of the time when cities sort of slowly decline, when people have time to move out or leave, um, they're taking their stuff with them, right? And people, um, that Mesoamericans quite famously across the board, not just the Maya, were pretty clean. Uh, they were big on sweeping up their home. It's not as really garbage, just like most humans, right? There were concerns about um, sanitation and stuff like that. So, so they wouldn't have just left all of their stuff out. Um, we also have... Uh, those same sites then evidence for burning, um, which preserves a lot of stuff in place. So, um, yeah, the site of Aguateca is, is one uh, pretty famous example of this um, in Guatemala that we think was probably rapidly abandoned because of warfare and then subsequently maybe burned. Mm. Mm. Cool. cool. Very interesting. Um, Let's get to the main story that I really liked that you, you mentioned to me before, which is the, I don't want to use the word, you know, like collapse, but like the first sort of rap decline of like, I guess it was pre-classical Mayans and like how much they were changing their environments and that, you know, their, where they were living. Cause I think that's a fascinating story and I would like for you to talk about it now. Sure. Uh, so the first Maya collapse 
if you will. Collapse is a problematic word, but we'll go with it, I guess. It, it does. It happens in the pre-classic period. So uh, before the rise of the classic Maya at all, um, basically what's happening is, is during the pre-classic, um, there are not as many Maya cities, uh, but the ones that do exist are massive. Um, and many of them are concentrated in this part of uh, northern Guatemala um, that we call today the Mirador Basin. Um, which is a bit of a misnomer, but that's not super important. Um, and these massive, massive cities are, are being built. The most famous among them is one called El Mirador. Um, possibly the largest Maya city really ever by some, by some metrics, probably certainly in like the volume of, of pyramids being built there, just these massive constructions. Um, and Basically what happens is uh, we don't know that, we know less than we should about El Mirador, which is a bit of a long story, but people are actively working there. Um, but they probably had quite strong centralized rulership, uh, commissioning the construction of big buildings um, that were constantly being resurfaced with stucco. Um, and stucco is made out of limestone, which is burned at really high temperatures and then sort of breaks down into what we call quicklime. Um, that quicklime is a mix with water and other aggregates like stone or shell or something like that. And it, it forms essentially like a, a, a soft concrete, a, a plastic, right? A stucco that can be used over the facade of structures. Um, and if you go to Maya sites today as a tourist, um, some of them, uh, you typically will see some stucco remnants still on the side of some of their buildings and even some of their monuments. Um, so this is big across sort of the Maya region. But in El Mirador, what we have is really thick, like several inch thick stucco being sort of uh, covering the face of these also massive pyramids. Um, stucco everywhere, too, across the floor of plazas. Just the entire city would have been sort of um, covered in plaster, and then a lot of it probably painted red and maybe other colors as well. So these kind of really vibrant, beautiful cities. Um, and while that's all fun and great, the problem with stucco is that it um, necessitates burning of a lot of trees. And so... The Maya living in and around El Mirador, um, who are constantly needing to um, maintain, right, these massive pyramids and are constantly resurfacing plaster floors and the big pyramids, are burning tons of wood fuel. Um, and throughout the pre-classic, El Mirador, this region, is a really nice place to live because it's in this region with uh, perennial year-long wetlands. Um, so their water is readily available. Also the animals living right um, in the wetlands are readily available. It's a quite lush environment, a really great place to live. Um, but the problem with what was going on around the Mirador is that when you begin cutting down trees in mass, um, you're deforesting the region and wood trees 
are really important for maintaining ecology um, for a lot of reasons, but at least one of the reasons, especially if you're living in a wetland environment, is because the roots of trees hold sediment in place. Mm -hmm. And so what began happening was every year when it rained, uh, sediments were being sort of increasingly pulled down into the wetlands. Um, which in and of itself might not be such a huge problem, right? You are kind of filling up the wetlands with sediments, but wetlands and other ecology, other ecosystems are super resilient. So that might necessarily spell the end. Um, but uh, there was sort of a, a toxic mixture at Mirador because it wasn't just sediment that every rainy season, which happens every year in the Maya region, um, it wasn't just dirt and sediment being pulled down into the wetlands. It was also residue from those temples and plazas. Mm. Sure. So what sort of began filling the wetlands was this mix of sediment and plaster. Um, and it sort of would settle at the bottom of the sort of a wetland bed um, and create a seal. So these perennial wetlands that uh, typically are sort of um, self-sustaining, right? Um, where water is percolating down through the limestone and then springs are refeeding it. Um, now it becomes kind of like a bathtub or a swimming pool mm. um, sealed at the bottom. Um, and so these are no longer really like low living ecosystems. Mm. Um, and what changes we think uh, is that it creates what is what is now characteristic of El Mirador, which are these bajo, these these low-lying areas um, that do collect water during the wet season, the rainy season, um, but that sort of dry up in the dry season. And because they're no longer functioning as wetlands, as living wetlands, even when they do fill with water, they're not necessarily great sources of potable water um, because they're not sort of... Um, living water systems, right? They're basically like just stagnant. Yeah, stagnant is it just like water. yeah, stagnant? Okay. Yeah. That's bad. Um, so we think basically what happens at the end of the pre-classic is that because of deforestation, overpopulation, and particularly just kind of overconstruction, um, they so drastically impact their ecosystem that it's no longer a suitable place to live. And this is why this massive sort of lost city of El Mirador is really quickly abandoned. Um, yeah, and, and really it impacts the entire El Mirador region. Everybody leaves uh, the basin. Other cities are abandoned as well. Um, yeah, and, and there's another city where something, uh, there's another city that now underlies Guatemala City, Caminahoyu, where something similar happens as well, but they basically do the same thing, but to a lake, uh, Lake Miraflores. Um, this is not super uncommon, and in fact, one of the few notable Maya cities to survive the pre-classic is the city of Tikal. Tikal is one of the very few great classic period cities that actually has its roots in the pre-classic period. Some people think it's one of the reasons Tikal became this sort of great city, because it had this really old dynasty. Um, and that was sort of a point of pride and then quite significant political power actually in the Maya region. Um, but Tikal, we think one of the reasons they were able to survive this pre-classic collapse is because they actually were pretty good at, uh, at managing their water. Mm -hmm. they, they were sort of more, it appears, 
Um, and it, it might just be environmental as more than anything, right? Their, their circumstances forced them. Um, they were in, also in a spring-fed region where they were sort of managing their water through a system of um, sort of cisterns and canals and things like that, but they might have been doing a little bit better job than some of these other big cities. So there are ways to plan intelligently to minimize the impact that humans are having on their environment? <laughs> there are. Uh, <laughs> Interesting. What? Yeah. I, this is also crazy because you were talking about wetlands, and I recently was reading about wetlands, and like apparently wetlands in America – they're only like 5% of America's like yeah. ecological land, but they're home to 31% of our plant species. Oh, wow. So they're like extremely important for the, for the ecosystem okay. because obviously if you have, you know, 31% of the, the flora, there's going to be a whole lot of, of fauna there as well. Mm. So huh. interesting. is there any like indication that there were learnings taken from some of these collapses, like in notes that were like, yo, bro, like no more than 20% of the forest or no water for you. No, I, I, I would say there's definitely a lot of learning that happens um, that we can sort of acknowledge and see. I, I, no might be a bit of an overstatement, but... Certainly, it's worth considering that, like, when people left El Mirador, they might have taken with them the knowledge that they destroyed their local environment. Um, they, they very well might have known that, and they might have taken steps to not do that. They also might have just taken steps to live somewhere that was a different kind of environment that maybe would be less affected by their pyramid building. There's some suspicion that um, the rulers that ruled out over El Mirador moved their dynasty to Palak Mool, which became another mega city at the same time as Tikal a little bit later on. Um, that's not proven. It's just kind of out there as a, as a possibility. So they might have just gone somewhere else and continued to live in much the same way, building massive pyramids and monuments and stuff. Um, certainly, uh, we, we see a lot of learning happening with like farming practices, uh, a lot of sort of advancements in farming practices among the Maya. But to be frank, I mean, we kind of see history repeat itself in a way during the classic period. The collapse there happens in a slightly different way, but it still probably has to do with similar things, right? Cities growing too big, leaders growing too powerful, maybe demanding too much. Um, the landscape is incredibly, whether, whether it's over-farmed or, or not is, is you know, kind of relational, but um, certainly it is in way more covered in terraces and agricultural fields than we ever knew before. Um, we're able to use this technology called LIDAR now. I don't know if you guys have heard of it. Mm -mm. I have, but go oh, ahead. Have. It's really cool. Yeah, I would like for you to talk about it. It's awesome. Yeah, it's um, basically, it's, it's really, it's of great use for a lot of people, but particularly for archaeologists who work in areas like the Maya region that are just covered in thick sort of jungle canopy that have always inhibited our ability to sort of see the landscape, especially like, like from an aerial perspective, right? We can't just fly over the Maya region and see things very well. 
Um, but even on the ground, mapping the Maya region on the ground is also incredibly difficult because it's still a lot of it in thick jungle. And basically what LIDAR does is it completely erases the jungle as an obstacle because um, it is uh, light, it's light detection and ranging is what it is. And, and it basically from a plane or a drone, you can fly over uh, on top of the canopy and there's a little machine connected that spins out um, hundreds of millions, even billions, depending on how far or how long you're, you're flying over. Of, um, of laser beams, of sort of laser signals, right, pulses down towards the, the foliage and the jungle. And those lasers get bounced back to the machine as soon as they hit something, make contact. And most of those lasers bounce back off the top of leaves and, and branches and stuff, right? But some of them, a small fraction of them, make it through all the way down through some line of sight right to the bottom of uh, the jungle sort of floor. And what we're able to do now is we're able to take those points, take that information, and basically using computer software, we can peel away all of the points that are of a higher elevation. So the points that are coming from the top of leaves and branches, we can pull those points away. And it's literally like peeling a blanket off the jungle, where all of a sudden you can see the topography of the entire, uh, the, the entire landscape without any of the trees. And it's so detailed that when we pull away the jungle now, we can see little tiny lines of, of terraces that are probably maybe only like a few centimeters tall even. Um, and it's incredible. I mean, it's like, it really is kind of like magic. It's not, but it feels like magic. Um, and so particularly the Maya region happens to be especially incredible because of how high quality the images are coming out of that region now. And because of the jungle there is so dense and we're realizing that this is a part of the world where we've been working, archeologists have been working pretty intensely um, in the Maya region for well over a century, right? This is one of the sort of most studied parts of the world. Mm. Um, and the fact that we've been doing as much work there as intensely, as long as we have and are realizing how little we know mm is incredible. And I mean, this technology is becoming more and more common now, but really this is only one of the first major breakthroughs was came out of an article published in like 2010. So this is like a 10 year old technology, really. Um, um, because of LIDAR, are you as an archeologist uh, afraid of losing your jobs to machines and automation? <laughs> I mean, I, I, I don't really do my work in the Maya region much anymore. I work in an area where actually LIDAR is not super useful because I work near Mexico City, um, which is not covered in jungle. The LIDAR does nothing. LIDAR basically just shows us all the buildings and everything that we can already see. Um, but... I think a lot of people who did, who worked really painstakingly for like years and years and years on maps of the region are probably really upset right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, um, but no, I 
mean, if anything, this kind of technology has only shown us how many sites there are that we didn't even know about that need to still be explored. And I think until a, a robot can sort of find objects and adequately interpret them, archaeologists are still good. Still safe. That might happen one day. I don't believe that that will never happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> Give it enough time. Oh, yeah. yeah. Pretty cool. All right. Kirby, this was great. This is great. Oh, sorry. Can I just ask one more? Yeah, please. I'm just curious about um, women in Mayan culture. Um, mm. How were they treated? And did you ever see like when women were uh, more equal or were more part of decision making? Was there perhaps less bad? This isn't exactly on theme, but I'll allow it. <laughs> no, my point was if there was women in charge, maybe there might have been less deforestation. You never know. Okay. Women right, tend sure. to have a better sense of nature. All right. Just fair enough. Check. Um, so there were Maya queens. Um, there were Maya queens who were probably the sole ruler. There, there were relatively few of them, right? Um, but we know the site of Palenque in particular has sort of a legacy of quite famous uh, female rulers. Um, but also, one interesting thing about women in Maya, this is specifically among the Maya nobility at least, they were, re they were really important because among the Maya, rulership was really tied to your lineage and royal lineages were super important among the Maya. Um, so who your mom was really mattered from sort of a bloodline. And in fact, you could legitimize yourself, your rulership, um, by your mother or your father. Um, so that doesn't seem to be as much of an issue. Now, typically rulers were, um, men, um, most, most, most Maya rulers acknowledged on monuments and things like that, um, are men. Um, but a lot, there's a lot of goddesses, um, women are, are relatively highly looked upon among the Maya. Um, this is generally speaking in Mesoamerica, roles are fairly gendered. Um, so labor is gendered. Um, but a thing I always tell my students about gendered labor is here in the U.S. and especially today, or more, more especially like 200 years ago, but today as well. We really think of gendered labor as um, as sort of inherently hierarchical and patriarchal because of the society we live in. But gendered labor doesn't always mean that there is um, a hierarchy there, right? Women's labor, and I, I know this really, at this point, I'm, I'm speaking a lot about the aspects who I spend most of my time studying now, but... Um, women's labor was really highly valued. And in fact, it was seen as, it, it not only was seen as, it was really crucial to the economy mm -hmm. and to the well-being of all of the people living in society, right? So like weaving, for example, um, kind of across Mesoamerica was commonly a women's work, but weaving was also essential um, because of the economy, because of its symbolic value. So this isn't seen as sort of an unimportant task, mm -hmm. right? Same with things like cooking, right, and processing food and caring for offspring. These are seen as essential tasks. Working in the garden, right? These are all seen as essential tasks. So labor is gendered typically, but that doesn't necessarily mean that there was as great of inequality between genders as we see, for example, with Ethan today. Yeah. 
That's super cool. Right. Sorry, I know you want to like keep that. I just had one more, one more question that's well. like um, you might also call not totally on topic, but I'll try to, to wrap it in. Um, so I think you hear both sides of that. There's like two ways of thinking, I feel like, when it comes to like the past and the way things were and like the, you know, where we are now in modern history. And you get this sense that like, you know, now people are like the most advanced, like the most impressive that humanity's ever been. And then you also get a lot of uh, romanticization of the past and like that they were more connected to the land and that they had, you know, a lot of impressive feats and whatnot. And I'm just curious as someone who lives in the modern day, but like really spends a lot of time thinking about dead humans and we're, you know, we're looking at climate change back then and now that's the, the link here. But um, do you really think there's I mean, are humans just humans and it just kind of depends on who's ruling and like, like the geography that influences their behavior? Or do you do you tend to like think more highly of people like that lived back then um, in terms of like their behavior? Just curious, like. Are we better or worse? I don't know. I just I, I just have you ever thought about this is a that? loaded question. There's no answer. Of course, I'm just curious your thoughts. Like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. It's hard to live in America today and think that anyone was ever worse than we are right now. Um, I think... I don't know. Are we better or worse? I I mean, I'm obviously very awestruck by the people I study and think they were incredibly interesting. I think... I think that humans in a way, are always humans. I think that we do have some shared traits, uh, especially within our recent history, say, like, since the Holocene or whatever, that um, like are interesting to probe. But I also think that humans, even today, living in the world, have such different ways of knowing things and seeing the world that it's almost, it's hard to compare, you know, because I, I just think that the Maya, one of the reasons I'm so fascinated by the Maya is that I think they they knew the world to be a completely different place than we know it today. Mm-hmm. I mean, we can't even really begin to get inside their minds. I mean, the, the things that they, they knew how the world worked, right? Yeah. But it was in a completely different way. Um, I don't know if that makes sense, but it, it's hard to compare ways of being without comparing ways of knowing. Sure. Yeah. No, that makes total sense. Um, that makes total sense. Eloquently and, put. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it is. I'm gonna, yeah, that's a takeaway. Yeah. That quote. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm not a professor in this stuff, but I always looked at it as like, it, it's like there's give and take like everything, right? Like mm-hmm. some Mayans, like they probably were more in touch with the earth way more than we are now. And that's a great way to be. But there's also at the same time, they, I mean, isn't, human sacrifice was a thing that was a real thing right and like human sacrifice is not great so it's like at least we got rid of human sacrifice but for them it was great (laughs) yeah sure like this is the thing i tell my students all the time about because everybody loves talking about human sacrifice is that like for the maya and and certainly well and bad things are a little bit different for a lot of reasons but um certainly for the maya Blood sacrifice, whether killing another human or often also just sacrificing your own blood, right? Auto sacrifice, which happened. Do you guys know about how this happened among the Maya? No. So they, they would bleed themselves. Um, they would give blood to the gods. 
Um, like they like cut their wrists? Just a little bit though, right? It's survivable. Um, yeah, yeah, just a little bit. They would sometimes pull a thorny, uh, like a thorny vine or a rope with thorns on it through their tongue. Ooh. Um, and uh, penis perforation was also common. Whoa. That's, yeah. That is a certain level of piousness that this guy will never have. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's certainly a different yeah, way of knowing and being. But it was, yeah, but it was seen as a, a holy, a, a very moral holy act because the idea is that you're feeding the gods your blood. God, mm. they, gods made a sacrifice to create humans. Mm. They sacrificed themselves to create us. So we owe them our flesh. Mm. Like oh. That's our payment to them. So if we want them to continue to help us grow our crops every year or ensure that we have rain, we have to give them our flesh. So, I mean, it was religious. It was, it was just a simple belief of how the, how the world works. So it wasn't an issue of really, oh, this is really bad. We're killing this guy. We're like, well, this is what we have to do. The gods are commanding this person's blood. Mm. So this is what we have to do. And are the gods... Um are they like pagan gods? Are they like, like how are they envisioning the gods? Are yeah, those... the gods are capricious. They're more along the lines of like maybe the Greek gods, mm. where I, wherein they um, the gods aren't good or bad. Maya gods aren't aren't wholly good or wholly bad. Some of them might have a slightly better quality. Some of them are definitely more revered than others. The maze god, for example, is way up there. Mm. Um, and sort of gods of the underworld are not as interesting or important to most people, probably. Um, but the gods are seen as people that you can make happy, and then they'll do, or not people, but beings that you can make happy, and they will do good um, for you, hopefully. Um, but they're also seen as you know, beings that you can upset. Um, so they're a little bit more moody. Okay. Wow. Uh-huh. So very human-like gods. Huh. The monotheistic yeah. god is also pretty moody if you read the Bible. <laughs> it's true. Like, it's true. the guy was sometimes petty. <laughs> uh-huh. For sure. Yeah. All right. Do you have any other off-themed questions, No, I'll, I'll limit it, but I definitely want to do another just a Mayan follow-up? There's to- there's so yeah. much to look into. The, yeah. the calendar alone and like... Um, we yeah. definitely need to talk a whole other pod. It's going to be just about the Mayan calendar. So you better study up. You better study up, Curbs. I mean, professional Curbs. I mean, professional. I mean, sorry. <laughs> what did you do? <laughs> Somehow Netflix turned on automatically. Ooh, you know, creepy. Messed up our yeah. very professional podcast. <laughs> and again. There we go. Um, all right. I, I think this is great. It was wonderful. Thank you, Kirby. No. It's Dr. Prof- Farah. Dr. or Professor Farah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Forgive me. Thanks for coming on. We really appreciate it. <laughs> yes, we do. Very Thank much you. so. Thanks for having me, guys. Um, tell Ryan we said hello, and we'll see you guys soon. Okay. Bye, y'all. Bye. Bye now. Lisa, is it, like, awe-inspiring to be married into like such an intelligent academic family it truly is yeah you're welcome for that thank you where yeah. there was a minute where you were thinking about getting your phd in history yeah <laughs> by minute you mean literal minute yeah though. like five um the problem with getting your phd is that you have to do a lot of reading yeah i don't even 
think I'd be worried about that for you. I think the just the like how hard it is to become a professor and like the fact that you have to like publish stuff like that seems really difficult yeah um but you you read when you're interested in something you read yes um, but like faster than you normally do i'm sure there would be something that you know i'd have to know and i'd just be like this is so boring i could be gambling on college football right now (laughs) yeah i guess it worked out so glad it's back lise yeah you're a happy boy yeah. Speaking of gambling, go Denver Nuggets. <laughs> yeah, we apparently stand a lot of money to win. Is that a thing, or is he only standed to lose? Uh, I mean, you can stand and do a lot of things. So. Yeah, you can stand and be a Denver Nuggets fan. You can sit and be a Denver Nuggets fan. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Or if your back hurts, you can lay on the floor and be a Denver Nuggets fan. <laughs> yeah, I wonder who does that. Yeah. Um, yes, it's quite exciting. They obviously pulled off that challenging come from behind uh, playoff win against the Clippers. Yeah. And down 3-1. Down 3-1 and now all they gotta do is be LeBron and, and, and then and win AD. in the championship. Yeah. That's it. That's it. And then I'll never have to work again. <laughs> Especially after we get a couple 30 second commercials. <laughs> yeah. That'll be the icing. It sure would. But um, we're already in over an hour. We hope y'all learned a lot from Curbs. I'm Dr. Farah, mm. um, we're definitely going to have her on again sometime. Yeah, that's a that's a big brain to pick. Maybe she can introduce us to other professors that can also be on this Ooh, podcast. She totally could. And then we actually will be like a credible podcast. It's pretty exciting. Set up some jackass retired history teacher <laughs> spewing BS in people. Uh, I don't know. I mean, you know, a lot of people have been to college and listened to fancy people. You know, maybe in their later life they want. The opposite. That's true. That is kind of what this whole thing was birthed out of. Yes, it was birthed out of that. It sure was. <laughs> Let's get out of here, Elise. Alrighty. Let's go watch some NFL football. Tackle oh. football. I got money on the Browns tonight. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, I guess my documentary will have to wait then. Eh, yeah, we'll see how terrible the game is. Okay. No one wants to be watching a Browns Bengals game. Oh, it's a Browns Bengals. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's funny. They look like shit against the Ravens. Well, everyone's going to look like shit against the Ravens. Ooh. Ravens are world beaters, Lisa. One more reason to move to Baltimore. Big trust, baby. Fly, Ravens, fly. Mm-hmm. Great eight. Lamar Jackson, MVP. For life. What's up? Lisa. <laughs> My name is Steve. Is it now? No. no yeah, hold on. My name is Steve. <laughs> <laughs> and I was a history teacher. No, a disaster. My name is Lisa. And I married him. A-